Acts chapter 8 is where we will be. Starting in verse 1 and going through to verse 25. While you're turning there, though, I have just some verses that I wanted to put up uh, to kind of give us a little bit of a background to what is going to happen in our passage. Uh, Ezekiel 18.30 says this, Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. And it's not just an Old Testament thing. Matthew 2, 3, John the Baptist is teaching, and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he did not necessarily know to the degree to which we know how at hand it was. Because Jesus, later when he does come, and the first words out of his mouth in his ministry are, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in Acts 3, we've seen this. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. If you haven't noticed, though, (coughs) repentance is a hard topic to bring up naturally. How about them cowboys? Man, it's a beautiful day out here. I'm in sin and I need to repent. One of those is not like the other. It's just the way it goes. Um, It's hard to bring up because it's a deep topic. And the flip side to that is that it's hard to even get to a deep enough level to be even able to bring that up because let's say we get past cowboys and weather and we get to politics and racism. It's still even deeper than that because it's personal and it's sin. We'd be talking about the deep and dark parts of us that we don't even want to be true of us, let alone other people to know. Yet... There are countless emphases in the scriptures on repentance, including from the mouth of Jesus himself. So why do we shy away from it? Maybe it's the Christian culture of today. I checked Amazon for best-selling books, because there's, you can check best-selling books, and I checked it on repentance. First of all, that's not a category. Um, so it sent me straight to uh, Christian self-help, which is an oxymoron. Christianity admits, I cannot help myself. So I don't know how that's a category. But um, I narrowed the search to just Christian books on repentance. I took out best-selling. Um, and the first five were fiction books. I, maybe, like, I had the thought. I was like, all right, so it's so far removed from us that it's fiction. Um, <laughs> so I had to go to the very next page on all these pages to find a Christian book on repentance. And it was written by this man, Thomas Watson, We'll get to that part later. (laughs) This guy. Very modern and relevant. It is a great book, though. I will will absolutely recommend that book. Um, But sadly, though, Thomas Watson's not in the mainstream of Christian authors today that give the Christian culture its ideals. And I see this with pastors, too. And I I felt it in me. I feel it in me. There's a a lot of pressure to come up with a funny and moving message that is relevant and modern where you don't want to miss it. And the first 10 minutes, you spend it on a story about yourself, and the message has to skip over hard topics such as sin and all that stuff because that's not how you grow a congregation into a megachurch. And it's to tell me that really I'm not that bad of a person, that I just mess up sometimes. And 
that God wants to take me to the next level, like I'm playing a video game. I kid you not, this week I saw uh, posted on to Facebook a sermon, a Sunday morning sermon entitled, How to Grow Your Business. What if I don't have a business? But it's popular. And it's what all the big guys are talking about. And their churches seem to be flourishing. And typically, typically, they never speak on, write on, preach on, or even talk about repentance. So let's none of us in our Christian culture talk about it because it's really, really awkward. But here's the issue. All of these things then preach the greatness of humanity rather than our depravity. They declare our goodness rather than our wickedness. Despite all of our inherent sin and evil, we like to think and hear and believe that we are inherently lovable and worthy and enough and really not that bad. And because of all this, we justify ourselves rather than confess our sin. We excuse our sin rather than admit our sin. And we dance around the very command that we've been given for our joy. Our Christian culture of today is robbing us of our repentance. It seems to be almost a non-existent topic today, unless we read our Bibles. Why is this an emphasis of Scripture? And why is it a tragedy that our culture shies away from the topic? Because we see in our passage today that people can believe and yet not be saved. We see that people can believe and yet not be saved. And the difference is in whether or not they practice repentance. With this in mind, let's read Acts chapter 8. Starting in verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution, speaking of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news, about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. 
but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. And we admit and confess that we are utterly sinful. We do not deserve to hold your very words to us in our hands. And so, Father, as we do read and as we hear and as we think about your word, would you open it to us? Would you give us exactly what it is you have for us as we read and as we learn so that we see a proper picture of you, so that we see a proper picture of what we are supposed to do in light of you. And so, Father, if there is anything that I say that is contrary to your word, that is against your word, that is contrary to your gospel, I pray first and foremost that you would keep it from my lips. Help me to skip past it. Or if it does slip past me in my sin, then I pray that you would help us to all forget it and that you would only let us walk out only seeing you. God, in this time, remove any distraction from this room so that we are just spending this time with you. Please help us and be with us and guide us in your word and change us by it. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Humans can believe, yet not be saved. The difference is in whether or not they practice repentance. And through this story of Simon, we see two aspects of repentance that he should have had if he were a true believer and what should be true of us if we are true believers. Two aspects of repentance. One is humility, and the second is prayer. The first is humility, that we might not add anything to the gospel because in humility we have nothing else to bring. And then two, prayer, that we might examine our own faith, all with the overarching goal that we might repent. If we have humility and if we have prayer, if we have those two aspects of repentance, we will be repentant. So let's look at the first one. The first aspect of repentance is humility. The whole book of Acts is summarized at the beginning of the book when the resurrected Jesus is talking with his disciples and he gives them a commission. He says, this is God's mission. This is what God is going to do. This is what we are doing. Join us. So it's a co-mission together to redeem for God a people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every people group. And the disciples don't really get this at the time. They think that 
This is the Messiah. So all of the prophecies are about him restoring this kingdom right here and right now. And so they ask him, like, so is it now? Like, is it, is it happening now? Jesus responds very gently. Um, but he knows that there are still people out there that have not yet been redeemed. He knows the greater mission of God. And so he says this in Acts, verse, Acts 1, verse 7. It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Don't focus on that. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Jerusalem has been the focus of the first seven chapters of Acts, but for the first time, the gospel is spreading out into these other areas just like Jesus said it was going to. And it's spreading because of the killing and persecution of Christians. Like Stephen, who was stoned just a little outside of the city walls. And that's where we pick it up in verse 1. And Saul, a uh, guy who goes on to write most of the New Testament by the name of Paul, Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. There's where that happens. And so they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul, Paul, was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And so people are fleeing for their lives, and reasonably so. But what the leaders meant for evil, God meant for good, and the message is spreading. And so we pick up for the very first time, not in Jerusalem, and not with Peter or John or any apostle, but just a normal guy. Philip, in verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And I, that's a beautiful thing. Being persecuted, killed, so they scatter, reasonably so, but they scatter with a purpose and a proclaiming and a preaching of the word. What is this word? Verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city, as there should be. This is what the gospel should do to a community. It should be a great joy to hear it, to, to talk about it, to proclaim it, to rest in it, because it, it is the good news to our bad news. It is the light to our utter darkness of our sin. That is, if we know our sin. Then Luke, the author of Acts, focuses in on one man specifically in verse 9. Well, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. The humility is strong with this one. Now, he did amaze people, like he had that going for him, but he just lives in pride. Verse 10, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And how much do you want to bet he started that himself? You know, he's like, I just float this out there. Hey, this is what people are saying about me. But Luke is keying us into the puffed-up heart of Simon. Verse 11, and they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But not any longer. Verse 12. But when they believed Philip 
as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And so Philip is going around the city proclaiming the good news that forgiveness of sins is possible. And the message of the gospel is so powerful that hordes of men and women are believing and being baptized. And then verse 13, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. But there's the issue. Simon was not amazed by grace. He was amazed by what grace could do. And this is key for what's about to happen because if the story stops here, it's an amazing story about this, how this guy comes to believe, but it doesn't stop here. Verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, just we do have to talk about this because as Christians, we are told that we receive the Holy Spirit at the moment we believe. And that might be true. The truth is we don't really know. Acts, the book of Acts, sets no pattern. There's no pattern to how this happens. The Spirit is connected with becoming a Christian, and that's it. Uh, sometimes the Spirit is connected with the laying on of hands. Sometimes not. Sometimes the coming of the Spirit precedes baptism. Sometimes it follows. But John uh, 3, verse 8 says, the Spirit goes where it wants to go. And this is important for believers to know because there's not a checklist of things to do in order to get the Spirit. God is on His time and His plan, not ours. So the Spirit cannot be tied down to any human manipulation. And this is important for us because of what we read next in verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, which we know is only sometimes true, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He wants the amazement back. He wants, okay, this is what's working now. This is the magic that's working now. I want that. But he asked for the power to give the Spirit, not the Spirit himself. What does that tell us? He doesn't care about the Spirit. He wants more clout in the city. He wants more greatness ascribed to his own name. Simon wants what God can do for him rather than God himself. Is this true of you? Anything that we desire over simply God himself, even if it is a good and beautiful thing, can make us worship the wrong God. What this is is the sin of idolatry. It is making a good thing into a God. Because it's a, it's a good thing to desire to want to use the power of the Holy Spirit, but his heart was to use it for his own glory, not for God's. And so his pride takes a hit when Philip comes on the scene. And since he can't beat them, since he's like, well, they're the amazing thing, he's like, well, let me join them. Verse 20. But Peter, the man who denied Jesus, ran away from Jesus, now has all sorts of boldness, said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. And this is a truly scary part of the passage. You claim to believe 
but you do not believe truly. Your heart is not right before God because he's trying to add something to the gospel. The second we add something to the gospel, it becomes not the gospel. The second we try to bring any bit of sacrifice into the gospel, let me do something so that I can get this. Outside of this, it becomes not the gospel. And so he says, you have no part or lot here, even though Luke just described him as one who believed, and he was even baptized. Why would this be true of Simon? Because he has not yet repented of his sins. What does this mean? What is repentance? Repentance is a turning from sin to living again for Christ. It is a sincere regret over sin and an earnest desire to walk in a new path of righteousness. It's hard, though, because everything in us wants to run from what we think is coming to us in a disappointed father. We think that God looks at us with regret for choosing to sin again, but nothing could be further from the truth. God the Father will never look on believers with disappointment because we are covered in the perfect blood of Jesus. There is no disappointment left for us in that covering. But this is what Simon does not have. He wants the power of the Holy Spirit. He does not want the Holy Spirit. But it is not true of those who believe. Because true belief in God will always lead us to repentance. Because in Jesus, we get to return. In Jesus, we get to return. The marker of those who understand the gospel of Jesus Christ is that when we stumble and fall, when we sin, we run to God and not from Him. Because we clearly understand that our acceptance before God is not based on our behavior, but on the righteous life of Jesus Christ and His sacrificial death. So this is what repentance is. It's a, I have sinned, I see that, I'm turning back to my Father. We do not repent to be saved. We repent because we are saved. And that's the main difference. Repentance should show itself in our lives. So why is it that we tend to shy away from it? Why is it so easy to justify ourselves and not confess our sins? What would help? Humility. Nothing gets more in the way of our repentance than our own pride. If we, like Simon, think that we are great then there's nothing to repent of. Yet, if we are inherently sinful and fall short of the glory of God by our nature, which is true, then there should always be something that we are repenting of. What prideful thought are you holding on to right now? What justifications for sinful behavior do you usually use? What sins can you repent of right now? And is one of them pride to think that you have no sins to repent of? To repent, we must first be humbled. But secondly, we must also pray. Verse 22, P 
Peter continues and he says, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. He says, You are enslaved to sin, Simon. Be humbled. Repent in prayer that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. And why is Peter asking him to, for this specifically, to pray this specifically? Because verse 21 says that his heart was not right with God. What does this mean? The difference between those who believe and those who truly believe is found in repentance. And it is the kindness of God that leads to our repentance. And so a heart that is right before God is a forgiven heart. In fact, the only heart that is ever right before God is a forgiven heart. If, you're a, if you are an unbeliever in here, do you understand what that means for you? You, by your own will, sin all the time. Some Christians might call their sin mess. Some might call it ugly. But what it is is sin. And you do it all the time. But what if I'm not murdering anyone? What if I stay faithful to my wife? Those are good things to do. But simply by being alive and by not beholding the knowledge of God through His Son, Jesus, you are in sin. Romans 1 makes the case that creation reveals God. The mountains, the trees, the meadows, the sunset, the sunrise, the tides, the tropical islands, the blue sea, the stars at night are big and bright. Deep in the heart of Texas? No? <laughs> but creation reveals God in the same way that Leah knows my handwriting. We see in creation a picture and a glimpse of someone who has created it. And so, by not dropping to our faces immediately upon seeing the glory of God's creation and acknowledging Him as God, we are in sin and we deserve wrath upon us because of it. Romans 1 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What are they doing to bring on this wrath who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, because we all know God, we see God, and thus we know God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Where does the darkness emanate from? It's not the action. It's not the murder. It's not the adultery. It's not the deceit. It's not the gluttony. It's not the outward action. Although all of those are bad, they are ultimately only pointers to the real darkness within and their foolish hearts were darkened. The issue is not our actions, but the heart behind our actions. And if by chance you think that your heart is good, Jeremiah 17, 9 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who wants to trust that? 
And this is the state of our sinful hearts, deeply darkened, deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. And to think that a heart such as this should be in the presence of God because we haven't murdered anyone? A heart such as this deserves to be away from God and punished forever. Why? Because God was gracious to create us. And God was gracious to send a Savior to us. And so every ounce of sin, even ones that are earthly, not that bad, is darkening an image of God that we bear and it deserves whatever punishment the Creator deems necessary. We misunderstand who God is if we think that we get to slide in because of a few good deeds. We don't need a better plan to do more and do better. The issue lies deeper than our hearts, deeper than our actions. We need a new heart. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? God can. And God knows that there is no way darkened hearts like ours can make it to him. And so he came to us. God, the all-powerful, all-knowing, almighty God who created the oceans and the skies by the word he spoke. He knows the depths of our sinful heart and could banish all of us from himself to be punished for them forever. But by some glorious mystery, he decided to show mercy. Ezekiel writes in 36, in chapter 36, verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And notice who does every bit of that work. I will. I will. I will. This is the only heart that is right before God because it is a forgiven heart that is softened by grace. This is what Simon didn't get. If you were a believer, though, are you acquainted with what this means for you? This means you have in Jesus a right heart before God. Believers, You have a right heart before God. You have the free gift of opportunity to turn from your sins, to be refreshed, to undeservingly take hold of everything that was due to Jesus. Because we are forgiven, it doesn't mean that we can go on sinning freely. It means that we get to return freely. Why would we choose such a small puddle of happiness when the joy the ocean of joy is right next door why does sin bog us down why when we sin do we have the conviction of the Holy Spirit that is this heaviness and that is this weight God is gracious to let it do that to us so that we are pressed to do to turn to something better And we do this through the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. To repent is a joy in the case of our gracious Father. And so our response as those who love joy, because we all love joy, none of us want to be sad, 
should be to pray with all fervor and zeal and strength to repent of all the sin we can find every day in multiple moments of the day so that it can be brought to the light and be covered by Jesus. Tragically, though, we have verse 24. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. He never prayed. And there's no mention of this man ever again. What are we to conclude about his eternity? It's a mystery. God has placed this here in our book with no concrete conclusion to the story so that we as believers might not ever stop growing in the practice of repentance. We should see this and think, oh, yep, that's something I need to do. Because those who believe are those who repent. Those who believe are humbled by their sin and they pray for God to remind them of their salvation so that they might be turned again to joy. Believers practice repentance. Turn with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a psalm of David. He's writing uh, this psalm directly after a man by the name of Nathan comes up to him and says, you are the man. Why would he say that? David uh, just had the whole thing with Bathsheba happen. He saw Bathsheba, uh, had what, said, hey, you guys go grab her. I want her for myself. And then uh, her husband was out fighting where David should have been fighting. And David, you know, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant. So he says, oh, well, maybe if I bring her husband back from the front lines, then, you know, it can be excused that way. And it doesn't end up happening. Uh, her husband is a really solid guy. So what David does is has him, has him sent to the front lines to be killed. And then he takes Bathsheba for his own wife. Crazy thing, but never repents of this sin until... A man by the name of Nathan walks up to him and he kind of just explains the whole story and he says, hey, King, what do you think should happen with this, with this guy? And King David says, we should put him to death. He should not live for do, having done such a thing. And Nathan says, you are this man. And David writes Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. 
Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Never once mentions the word, but that is a beautiful picture of repentance. And one thing that David does not know, that we have the beauty of getting to know, is that the Holy Spirit will not be removed from us. We can turn to the Father because of the sacrifice of the Son to take on the wrath of our sins. And so we get to, we have the joy, we have the opportunity to turn to our Father because in Jesus, under the covering of Jesus, there is no wrath left for us. So we repent all because of Jesus. Otherwise, it's a terrifying thing. Otherwise, it's a really awkward thing. Otherwise, I don't blame our culture. But I do. Because of Jesus. Our joy is of repentance. And one joy of repentance is that it is an act of faith that we will never again have to do in glory. One Uh, Once the new heavens and the new earth arrive with the victorious Jesus coming to make all things new, we will finally and forever have this heart that worships our Father like we were created to do. And we will have no, we will never have to worry about repentance ever again. We will see him in his face in all of his glory and be ever satisfied. And until this day that is coming, it's a joy to repent. Because each time we see a small glimpse of this gracious and wonderful and loving and merciful Father, we see a true and better refreshing that is to come in Jesus. So we're going to celebrate the good news of this gospel. That we have right hearts before a holy God by the grace and mercy that he bestowed upon us in his son. And by partaking of the Lord's Supper together, uh, this is how we celebrate. It is a visual picture of the gospel that what does satisfy What does give us joy? How do we know that when we turn back to our Father in repentance that there will be no wrath left for us because we hold in our hands everything that wrath did and there's none left for us. If you're a believer, you're welcome to the table to partake as part of the family. However, if you're an unbeliever or if you're in unrepentant sin, I ask that you remain in your seat in this time. For you would be eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. If you're in unrepentant sin, in Jesus, you have the wonderfully good news of the gospel.
to rest in again today. That your sins, the ones that you are sitting in right now, have been paid for once and for all at the cross. The work that it took to pay for these sins was once and for all declared finished. Turn from your sins to be refreshed to your joy yet again. If you are not yet a believer, would you believe? Would you turn from your life of sins to believe in, to believe in the finished work of Jesus as the only thing, as enough to save you? There is no other way, but there is a way. Would you believe? For all of us, our, this is our prayer in this time. Father, I admit my sins to you. And I pray that you would remind me of the joy of my salvation, that I may live in it for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. So take your time to pray through whatever it is God has given you. And when you're ready, the elements are at the back of the room. Grab them and bring them back to your seats. And we'll take them all together here in a minute. Ultimately, it is through the lens of the gospel that we repent. In Psalm 51, David asks, says, Restore to me the joy of what? Of my salvation. Remind me again that you have saved me. Remind me again of the good news of the gospel. Why? Because by it we see a gracious and loving Father. All because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, it is so easy because of our fallen nature, because of our sinful nature to think that, oh, we can't return. Oh, we can't turn back to you. Because this sin is just too ugly. This sin is just too much. Surely I've gone too far this time. Surely God is tired of me bringing the same sin over and over and over again to him. Father, would you remove these thoughts from us by the power of your Holy Spirit would you point us to the only hope that we have in Jesus Christ would you let us see and behold the good news of the gospel yet again that we may have joy 
that we may turn from the darkness and weightiness of our sin to belief and joy yet again. Not because we are worthy, not because we have it in us, but because of the beauty and the worth of Jesus Christ. Would you let us lean on and rest in that finished work? Oh, Father, would you help us? We all ultimately long to be in relationship with you, but it is hard. Would you give us the strength? Would you give us the joy? And Father, what Simon did not do, we proclaim now. Not that any of us in this room are great, but that you, Father, are great. You, God in heaven, who created everything, including us, saw fit to be merciful to us. Great are you, Lord. And we pray all of this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ.